Welcome to episode 31 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Bird and Monteverdi. My name's Chris Bland. And my name's Kelly Harlow. You're listening to episode 31 of That Classical Podcast. Welcome, everybody. Uh, right, by way of an update, Chris, where the hell have you been for the last <laughs> month slash all my life? So we haven't <laughs> uploaded in a little while, guys. That's because yeah. I've been out the country for work. I've been in Geneva working with the menu and violin competition. So don't worry, it's Be- still been classical music sure. related. Yeah. Still staying very on brand. Yeah. Don't worry, guys. Yeah. But now we're back. Congratulations. In other news as well, guys, we've been nominated for a British Podcast Award, which we're so incredibly excited about and really, really grateful for as well. Um, Just a quick shout out to everyone that's been supporting us for the past two years. We're like so over the moon. We're very excited. Right. Well, enough of that. What the hell are we doing today? Well, today we're taking it old school. And by old school, I mean pre-1600s <laughs> old school. school yeah. Really, really old school. Yeah. So we've briefly touched on the Renaissance period before, mm-hmm. which is the period even before Baroque. So oh we're talking God. like 1400 to 1600 here. Older than your granddad. Older than most people's granddad, wow, I would yeah. wager. Mm. So really, really old school, but a lot of interesting and worthwhile music from that time. Yeah, <laughs> Amazing. So you're going to start, aren't you? Absolutely, I am. I'm going to be talking to you about a English composer called William Bird. Bird, bird, bird. He's truly the word. Bird is the word. Smashed it. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm also excited for the fact that it's now time for... <laughs> Yes, indeed. It's that time that comes in every That Classical Podcast episode when we have to squish down a composer's life, works, times, interests, loves, laughs, lives into one minute or less. Mm -hmm. Right. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Are you steady? Oh, yes. A go. William Byrd was born maybe in 1539, died in 1623. He was born in London, but we don't really know when. Will was kind of hazy on the details himself. Not much info survives about his early years, but we do reckon that he studied with Thomas Tallis at the Chapel Royal. Uh, his first job was at Lincoln Cathedral as an organist. Uh, already kind of hints for troublemaking, he got in trouble for overly elaborate organ playing. Uh, in 1568, Byrd married Juliana Burley. They would remain married for the rest of their lives and had at least seven children. Uh, the 1560s were generally a pretty good decade for him. Uh, his increasing output shows that he was slowly becoming a major player in the Elizabethan musical scene. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I is a fan, yeah, and grants him and Thomas Tallis exclusive publishing rights for 21 years. Woo! But the work they produce is a financial flop. Whoops. In the 1570s he gets more heavily involved in Catholicism in a very Protestant country. He has to practice in secrecy but actually gets away with quite a lot. Uh, he and his wife appear on recusancy lists but manages to avoid paying most fines, receive lots of support from his wealthy buds. Uh, pretty prolific output though, covering most contemporary styles, arguably the greatest European composer of the time. Five. Died 1623 is a pretty rich man despite all of the fines and punishments he got for being Catholic. 58 seconds. I'll take it. You nailed it. I will take it. I, do you know what I automatically just love about this period of history? Nobody really knows any dates. <laughs> for sure. It's like, it's, all... it's around this time. Well, yeah. So specifically his birthday, because he was always just like a bit uh, <laughs> hazy on it. Yeah. So in his will, he describes himself as in the 80th year of my age, okay. which he wrote in one year, which suggests a certain birth year. Right. But then another time he wrote, I'm about 58 years or thereabouts. So Okay, I mean, clearly lying. Pretty approximate on the whole thing. So we're not totally sure of exactly when he was born, but we know it's about that time. I'll let him off. 
But yeah, generally, so he was viewed as one of the greatest composers of the time in the sort of latter half of the 16th century, so 1550 to 1600. I always get confused. Nice one. So he was, as I said, really prolific, uh, produced stuff in a whole bunch of different genres. Um, well, the genres that were available at the time. So lots what of vocal they? music, yeah. madrigals, uh, oh, yeah. stuff for... Church things. Church things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. However, church things were a problem throughout his life, <laughs> as we'll go on to discuss throughout because uh, he was a Catholic in a country that was definitely not Catholic at the time. Oh I see, right So with that in mind let's move on to the very first piece <laughs> that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. uh, and that is called Ave Verum Corpus Do you know it? I do. I mean, there are quite a lot of Ave Verum Corpuses discussed. So it's a a set text, essentially, that's used in this. uh, It's called the Corpus Christi Religious Service, and they've got a bunch of different ones in it, one of which is Ave Verum Corpus. In Catholicism? Yes, originally, but now it's also sometimes used in Anglicanism as well. Okay. So England uh, was a Catholic country. Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce and to sleep with other women. The Pope was like, this, this won't fly. This yeah. is not allowed. Uh, Henry was like, fine, I'm going to start my own church and it'll allow me to divorce whoever I want. Oh my God. I can have loads of what, just so many wives. British history is the worst and the best <laughs> at the same time. So at this point, he creates the Church of England and England is now an Anglican country and the Tudors, the royal family to which Henry VIII belongs, mm. are pretty much, for the most part, Anglican, except right. for a couple of Catholics here and there. So, Catholicism, therefore, at this time in English history, is not acceptable. It's punished by fines, by imprisonment, even torture and execution. Shit. They were pretty serious about stamping this out. Yeah. Uh, this means that any traces of Catholicism, even, are completely out of here. So, Why? we're talking about using Latin in church services, because Anglicanism was strictly about doing everything in English. Right. All that sort of stuff. Bird is not having any of this. Okay. He refuses to conform to Anglicanism. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, you know, pretty pretty staunch Catholic throughout his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so he composed music for use in secret Catholic services oh that gosh. were held in uh, homes of wealthy Catholics, basically. Wow. So some rich people still remained Catholic and they gave over their homes to be like secret meeting places for people to have Catholic mass. Mm -hmm. However, he sort of managed this sort of subterfuge and rebellion without really suffering too much, partly because he was really good at music and partly because he was uh, really in favour with Elizabeth I. So he, so she might have been aware what he was doing. It wasn't a case of like, he never got caught. No, no, he got caught literally all the time. He was really bad at keeping it a secret. Great job. Uh, but because he dedicated loads of music to Elizabeth I and was generally like cheeky, in her favour. Very cheeky, yeah. So the main difference between the more Anglican Puritan style of church going music was that, as the name implies, Puritan was very much sort of mm-hmm. not about the bells and whistles. Whereas Bird, as we know, for his fancy <laughs> organ play that got into trouble as a young man. <laughs> He was very happy to add some flourishes and exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, Bird is a Catholic and things get really exciting in about 1517. I'll say. Uh, In this year, the Pope essentially says that Elizabeth I is an outlaw in the eyes of the Catholic Church uh, and that her subjects, therefore, don't have to pledge allegiance to her or to be loyal to her. What? This means that at this point, any Catholics in England are not just seen as not conforming to religious customs. They're now like properly traitorous Enemies and of seditious the state. 
exactly that. Exactly that. <laughs> but Bird, super sneaky, manages to pretty much come under the go under what the radar the for this. this uh, he carries on writing music for these private masses, uh, hangs out with a bunch of high-profile Catholics, uh, including some who would later actually go on to be executed for being involved in the gunpowder plot. Shut up. Um, which, again, if you don't know British history, bunch of Catholics decided to blow up the Houses of Parliament by smuggling loads of gunpowder underneath it. They got caught. It's fine. There's a great version with Kit Harrington on the BBC. Oh, Kit Give Harrington. Give a watch. What a man. What a babe. Uh, but yeah, he generally gets away with this. He did have to appear at local courts all the time for not attending his local Anglican church mm-hmm. and have to pay relatively heavy fines, but was mostly okay. Got away with it because A, he's rich, B, he's good at music, and C, he's very well connected. Was he quite hot as well? Like, did he charm his way through this, through his looks? I mean, given that the only surviving pictures we have of him are just like a wood etching. <laughs> I'm going to say... Yes. Of course you would. Now, with that beautiful image burned into our minds, let's listen to Ave Verum Corpus. I always have time for that kind of music. I tell She's you that. She's got a lot of time. I really do. It's just beautiful. Oh my goodness! I agree. It transports I agree. you, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and so, what I really like about this, uh, just from a musical technical perspective, mm. is that so lots of the choral music at this point, certainly lots of the Anglican choral music, is very what's called homophonic, uh, which is where yeah. everyone's saying the same words at the same time but in the same rhythm, mm-hmm. but on different notes, obviously, so it creates a chord. Like Gregorian chants. For example. Right. But what he's introducing here is what would go on to be a really key stylistic feature of Baroque music, so what came after it. And uh, you sort of hear the beginnings of polyphony here. Mm-hmm. So while lots of this is people saying the words at the same time mm-hmm. to form a chord, mm. he's introducing elements of different voice parts coming in with their own different entries and right. adding in different counter melodies to it. So awesome. it's... Really interesting to see it as sort of the the birth of Baroque vocal music, basically. Mm. It sort of starts from Bird. Who Had no brilliant. one really done it before him? Not in this way, no. That's um, amazing. So yeah, yeah he's the first one to do this sort of crazy just stuff. just woke up one morning and was like, they're not all going to sing at the same time. Oh my God, write this down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then just to wrap up, the reason why this is... <laughs> Really, really uh, transgressive music, I'd say, is that, so the words Ave Verum Corpus means hail true body. So it's talking about like, look at the body of Christ. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's my own version of it. And in Catholicism, obviously, transubstantiation, where when you uh, drink the the wine and take the bread, you believe, communion, yeah, you believe it's the actual body of Christ. Whereas Anglicanism is like, no, it's just allegorical. Mm -hmm. And this has provided a lot of uh, healthy debate over the years. Right. But so this being in Latin and being like, look at the body of Christ is sort of a double restatement of Catholicism and how great he thinks it is. So a lot more 
right. Oh, bloody hell. transgressive than it might appear at first listen. Excellent. Your voice went very high. That Classical Podcast. The next piece we're going to talk about today is called Mass for Four Voices. Can you guess what this might be? I have my suspicions, yes. So as the name very much implies, this is a mass for four voices. I was right. However, this was some real secretive stuff. Okay. Let me tell you that. This is Mission Impossible 1592. Really? So Bird couldn't publish his masses as a set, but had to produce them as individual things. So okay. I actually learned a fancy new word today, right. and that word is bifolio, which just means a piece of paper folded in half. A useless word, I might... might well, very useful in this context, right, okay. because <laughs> he published these masses as just a piece of paper folded in half. Okay. Uh, so there was no title page, didn't identify the printer or the publisher or anything at the top. Oh my... I mean, I me- that makes sense. I, like, were they just like circulated in the Catholic underworld? Yeah, no, they no. literally were. Yeah, That's yeah. So- Mate, why is this not a film? Why is this <gasps> not a film? Let's make a film. Let's make a film. <laughs> Guys, we're going to crowdfund it. Watch this space. Coming to you. So, yeah, as I said, no identifiable details at the top, which allows for plausible deniability if you ever got caught with it. Exactly right. And yeah, makes yeah. it much harder to trace back to the publisher the composer the printer etc etc okay yeah so yeah if you're found with one of these you are most likely to be very very arrested indeed. yeah because i was gonna say even if it doesn't have a name or anything couldn't they just say well clearly you wrote it do you know what i mean well yeah sure it's, so still, it's still pretty dangerous yeah you don't want to be found in oh possession God, of one of these the catholics were badasses man this is great <laughs> yeah they were and it actually took us about 400 years uh, to work out who published them and when so it was only that was in, my next question yeah it was only yeah. the 1960s we worked out and this again is some more like hollywood stuff right uh so yes. some boffin worked out by looking at the patterns of wear and tear on the letters used on the printing oh of God. the pieces yeah and comparing them to the wear and tear on printing machines present in London at that time, oh managed to narrow it down to the publisher that it might have been as a guy called Thomas East, if you're interested. Okay, yeah. Just by the wear pattern on his individual printing That's press, amazing. they managed to work that out, which is insane. It is, yeah. So, lots of Bird's vocal music around this time talks about uh, Catholic persecution in Tudor England. Unsurprisingly, it was sort of mm-hmm. at the forefront of his mind. Right. And so we're going to listen to the Mass for Four Voices today, and it's, you know, it's lots of, we're being persecuted, and right. this is sad, and God, okay. please look after us. So the final movement is an Annus Dei, the Lamb of God, which again, is pretty standard, and mm. the Latin text in it is a Dona Nobis Pacem, which is sort of God grant us peace, yes. look after us, mm-hmm. please be nice to us, yeah. God, we are going through some <laughs> tough times down here. Yeah. So we're going to now listen to the Sanctus and Benedictus from his Mass for Four Voices.
man, you just don't want it to end. Like, <laughs> I also feel like those those pieces really stand the test of time. Yeah. They are, like, timeless, aren't they? Yeah. They're, I mean, you can tell they're not written no. yesterday. But, <laughs> true, um, true. But yeah. you know, they're not so crazily old-sounding, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's funny you should say that, actually, because he was forgotten for quite a while so his music right. fell out of favor until the end of the 1800s uh, and then the roman catholic church at that point was sort of re-established and more allowed yeah uh, <laughs> and they brought specifically this piece back the mass for four voices right. and this piece and his work more generally is now actually quite commonly heard in anglican cathedrals and counts as an important piece in the Anglican choral tradition as well, ironically yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, it's fine for us now too. <laughs> Just, let's, <laughs> let's sing it in our churches as well. Mm. But yeah, so this music with its sort of harmonic complexity where you hear the notes sort of clashing and resolving and moving yes. over each other. Yeah. Uh, that's something that just wasn't happening in the sort of Puritan Anglican churches at the time. Mm. So this was... Yeah, really innovative and rebellious, I would go so far as to say. Yeah, great. So that's William Bird. Anything else we should listen to? Yeah, you can listen to the... He wrote a mass for three voices and a mass for five voices as well. Okay, yeah. The one for five. I know, right? The one for five is probably the more famous. Really like that. Uh, He's also written a bunch of madrigals and stuff, if you're into that. I Mm -hmm. don't know that much about those. Mm -hmm. So my intro to Bird is largely through choir through choral stuff so that's how i know the vocal music that we've listened to today uh but yeah loads of really interesting choral stuff to listen to for Brilliant. sure and also i'm just going to make the point that when we were looking on spotify for some of those pieces um i did see a picture of him and he was really attractive so just saying <laughs> just saying that classical podcast right so now it's time to talk about Claudio Monteverdi. I'm going to call him Monty from now on, okay? The full Monty. Just the fullest of Montes. <laughs> um, just because my Italian accent is is wanting, to All be right, honest. But Monteverdi, so. you can do with that. Monteverdi. Okay, Monteverdi. I'll All try. Right. Uh, let's do the 60 seconds. Are you ready to time? Oh, I am so ready. Okay, here we go. Claudio Monteverdi in three, two, one. Claudio Giovanni Antonio Monteverdi was born May 1567 in Cremona, Italy, but it wasn't really Italy back then, and technically he was born Spanish. No bloody clue about his childhood, other than the fact he trained as a choir boy and supposedly started studying music with the Maestro de Capella of Cremona Cathedral. Published his first work in 1582 at just 15 years old. It was some madrigals. He started writing a bunch of religious and secular works after this. 1589 became a string player for the Duke of Mantua. 1590 published more madrigals. 1599 married singer at court called Claudia. Confusing. Had some kids. 1602 he was finally appointed Maestro de Capella of Duke's Court at 35 years old. Published more madrigals. At this point, People mainly considered him a highly, slightly weird composer of little ditties here and there. But in 1606, he was commissioned by the Duke to write the opera L'Orfeo, which established him as big boy pants composer man. Kept writing <laughs> operas and ballets after this too. Then in 1608, he was like, oh crap, I'm sick and poor and I need to leave Mantua. Okay, bye. But the Duke was like, no, you're staying. But So he stayed, but got super depressed. Finally dismissed in 1612. Managed to get a good position at Venice at St. Mark's Basilica, wrote tons of church music. Ten did seconds. more madrigals. 1630, plague broke out. He was like, okay, I'm going to do holy things now. Got ordained in 1632. Wrote a mass and you guessed it. Even more madrigals. Went on Three. to write more operas and sacred Three. music in the 70s and then died in Venice. On the 29th of November, 1643. Whew. A lot, a lot happened I to him. I crammed so much in there, and I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, my favourite two things, favorite three things about that. Yeah. 
Again, no idea about his early years. <laughs> no just like, idea, Yeah, mate. maybe happened then. Oh, my goodness. Secondly, the phrase, big boy pants composer man. Yeah, Big important. fan of that. Yeah. Thirdly, he was called Claudio and his wife's called Claudia. I know. Confusion Love it. I know. But yeah, no, no one really knows anything about his childhood, to be honest. He, like, trained in music a little bit. And sure. then I think just got quite into it and, and kind of rolled with it. All right. Um, one of my favourite facts that I found out about him is, so, you know, he worked for the Duke of Mantua, right? Yeah. And he was initially passed over uh, for the role of Maestro de Capella. I use that phrase a lot. It just means like the head of music, basically, at sure. a court or like at a cathedral yeah. or whatever. So he was passed over for this role. But the Duke of Mantua was like, you know, Monty, look, I, you <laughs> didn't get the job, but I really like you. I think you're a top bloke. So I've decided you can accompany me to war. All right. I'm sorry you didn't get the job, but you're coming to war with me. What was you he doing? You might die. Okay. <laughs> Girl. What was he doing in the war? He was just, just like... like going on like jaunts to the war to like check on it and stuff. And Monteverdi <laughs> had to come with him. To, in like to a musical war. capacity? I don't know, but I just find just that hilarious. Like, you're not going to be the head of music, but you may die. Oh dear. And yeah, to be clear, Monteverdi is basically considered one of the most, if not the most significant composers in the late Renaissance and early Baroque period. Ooh. In fact, he was sort of the person to really link the two, or at least yeah. he's considered that yeah. today. Yeah. But he broke rules unapologetically, a little bit like our friend, badass bird. Um, <laughs> and he used quite severe dissonance and clashy mm. melodies and Ooh. harmonies to bring out the real depth and emotion of the poetry he put to music. And putting poems to music was basically all people did back then, sure, really, let, sure. let's be honest. And in fact, he said in a letter once in 1633, I would rather be moderately praised for the new style than greatly praised for the ordinary. Monteverdi, I hear you and I'm with you. I love how, like, I am you. withstanding criticism was never an option, though. He's like, I'm still obviously going to be praised, <laughs> though, either way. Yeah, exactly. Either way. So, let's start with Zephyro Torna. Mm. Okay, I apologise for my Italian accent in advance. So, of course, we had to do a madrigal. I hope you heard me say the word madrigal a thousand times in the 60-second biography. He just really loved to write them. And, in fact, he wrote madrigals across his musical career. The man loved himself some madrigals. Yeah, he really did from the start to the very end. So we're throwing this word around a lot. Kelly, what is a madrigal? (laughs) Like, honestly, in the simplest terms, it was just what they called a song in a, the Baroque and Renaissance periods. It could be a song set to poetry or or not, usually a secular piece. So that means just non-religious. Sure. Um, okay. Basically, it's just, it's just a nice little song. Just a song. Just a Chill song. out. So <laughs> this is my favourite of all Monteverdi's madrigals. As oh. I said, he wrote loads. It's my favourite. I hope it's your favourite too. So <laughs> Zephyro Torna basically means, oh, Zephyr, return... <laughs> Uh, and in this case, Zephyr or Zephyr is referring to the West Wind. In many ways, the spiritual predecessor to the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, Fly Away on My Zephyr. Almost exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> That's amazing. So Zephyr Adorno was published uh, in a collection of Scherzi Musicali and in Monty's ninth book of Madrigals in 1632. So he was really getting on a bit in age at this mm. point, but clearly... Still got it. And it's based on a poem by Ottavio Rinuccini. I'm so sorry. Who was a 16th century poet. And it's about the west wind stirring the landscape and bringing the spring and all the things that go mm, along lovely. with the spring, like canoodling. <gasps> um, and at the end Not of the canoodling. Bit, I know anything but canoodling. Think of the children. Um, so it was originally written for two tenors. So two male voices, that is. Uh, But actually, a lot of the time it's sung by sopranos, like the one we're going to hear. Cool. 
Uh, so standard, okay? You've got the continuo in there. If you remember, oh. we've spoken about a continuo before, like a basso continuo. That's how you know it's Baroque. That's how you know it's Baroque, exactly. It's the kind of standard type of Baroque accompaniment uh, with various Baroque instruments, just keeping time, making cool. things a little bit more interesting. Lovely. You know the drill. And the super interesting thing about this piece is that it's in chacona form or chacon form, mm. right? Which really simply means that there is a really short and repetitive bass line as an accompaniment throughout the piece, which you'll hear in the like the first three seconds, you'll sure. know exactly what it is. And it was one of the first kind of musical duets to actually use this form. Amazing. As the basis for yeah. it, which is just really fun. And I promise you, it's not a cop-out. It's not some boring, like... <laughs> it's this really infectiously energetic like jolly and catchy figure it's Amazing. it's like a hook in a pop song honestly oh man i'm it's very excited been to my listen head for to this days. now just before you listen to it monteverdi was a bit of a master of text painting all right if you remember Ooh. that just means that he was great at using the melody to echo the meaning of the lyrics or the nice. poetry for example yeah. so one example of that is when the poem talks about murmuring wind among branches of the trees. The voices start kind of waving and weaving around each other in this kind of babbling fashion, which is lovely. And then when the poem goes on to talk about mountains, uh, the soprano or the tenor voice jumps way, way, way up in his range or her Got range. It. And then immediately after they talk about valleys and then it goes really, really low. <laughs> A classic manoeuvre. I know. Do you know what? And I get it, like it's not rocket science, but in the 1600s, this sure, was the time it must have been news. mind no, blowing. Seriously, it actually was this huge thing uh, because it meant that performers back then could actually have fun with it, yeah, and they could bring like humor to it and their performances. Uh, and it basically, well, I and, guess like, that makes sense because you said the collection was called what, like, scherzi musicality, exactly. sort of, like musical jokes, exactly, right? Yeah, 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 cool. And it basically just became this huge hit. It was essentially Hit Me Baby One More Time <laughs> uh, in 1632. I would argue if it's fun. It's more like the weird Al Yankovic of his day. I... <laughs> Did he have curly hair? I'll, I'll, I'll you know. um, now, of course, we won't hear any of these things that I just talked about because I'm playing the start of the piece where they say Zephyr O'Torna for about eight years over and over Super. again. But when you listen to the rest of it by yourself, you'll be like, thanks, Kelly. Um, but let's just go into it and listen out for that uh, Chacon bass. That's jokes. Isn't I that, that just brilliant? Yeah. Like, the, the wonderful thing about music from this time is that even back then, it was interpreted totally differently by different musical groups mm. and, and singers and mm. things like that. So this is just another different interpretation to the next person that would play it, you sure, know, like sure. tomorrow at a gig or whatever. But I just love this version because of that, like, strumming, like, hitting sound yeah, on the same. whatever instrument it is. I was, was going to say. presumably. Is it a guitar? It sounds like a guitar. No idea. Um, but I just think... It's, it makes me think, wow, if I'd have been around back then, I would have grabbed my friend and made them have a dance with me. I mean, I'd probably be dead at this age, but well, I would exactly. have tried. <laughs> You're well into your old age. Now, the yeah. But um, just an absolute banger of the time. You can see why it became some really popular thing, mm, can't you? Mm. 
and why he wrote so many of them. He was like, I'm onto a good thing here. (laughs) The magicals. He never stopped. That classical podcast. Next! It's Monty Verdi's Vespers. Yes! Oh, yes. I love these. Monty's Vespers are really, really famous. <laughs> by the way, what we mean by Vespers, uh, I know we've, we might have explained it before, but just so you know... Yeah, we've explained it once briefly. It's simply just evening prayers, basically, put to song. A set of sort of daily prayers in the Catholic Church. It's been the same for like a thousand years or more. Mm. Um, bish, bash, bosh. So, in 1610, Monty wrote these Vespers. The full name is Vespro della Beata Vergine. Mm. I'm sorry if that was wrong. Your Um, accent's getting better every time. Thank you very much. Uh, Which basically means Vespered for the Blessed Virgin. Lovely. Now, this was a massive 90-minute piece and was basically the most ambitious work of religious music before Bach. Before yeah. your best friend Bach. I know. So Monteverdi's easier your man. But then Bach wiped the floor with him and every composer Okay, it, calm down. Uh, so nobody really actually knows why he wrote these, by the way. Really? Um, yeah, some people think it was for like a little festival, like Saints mm. Day kind of thing. Uh, other people think, because remember, this is 1610, so... Monty was like quite sad and depressed, but the Duke of Mantua was like, no, you can't leave. You have to stay. You can't leave. You're staying here. Come to what? Yeah. So at this point, (laughs) come to what? So at this point, Monty was like, crap, need to get a job, need to get a job elsewhere. So he was sending out like audition pieces, basically, to Venice and Rome. So some people think this might have been for that. Um, Uh, And then he got his post in Venice at um, St. Mark's Basilica. So anyway, point being... Uh, the Vespers have stood the test of time because of how Monty stayed true to the kind of highly religious set of psalms and hymns. That's all Vespers are, really. Like, mm. you know, so he stayed really true to the psalms and hymns, but gave it some total non religious welly, basically. Non religious oomph. Yeah, exactly. Some, some non religious vibes uh, musically. Like, for example, he bases each movement off of the kind of old school Gregorian chant, like, like from the text uh, of the psalm or whatever. But then basically goes off on one, uses that as the kind of general theme, but does lovely, like, melodic and harmonic things with it. And do you know what? It's just really clever. And even more important. So the one we're going to listen to is called Deus in Adutorium. Uh, This is the first sort of introductory prayer in Vespers. Mm -hmm. I am so glad that I found this piece. I'll tell you for why. <laughs> tell me for all why. Right? So if you remember in our opera episode, I talked about L'Orfeo, which which Monteverdi wrote, which was the first like proper opera. Proper. Of... <laughs> oh my God. Pro- proper of the time, right? And listen, I when we, I was going to do Monteverdi today, I was like, oh, mate, have to play the... It's not quite the overture yeah. uh, of it. It's called a Toccata, right? Sure. But it is the kind of opening fanfare of the opera, right? I was gonna like, oh, I was going to play that, but I've already talked about Lofay, I've already talked about the storyline, so I yeah. can't. So then I was like, oh, yeah, do something from the Vespers, like Cheeky Vespers. Then played the first track, the yeah. first like movement of the Vespers. Monty self-plagiarised Oh, what so a hero. Bad. And the hilarious thing is that he wrote L'Orfeo in 1607. Yeah. The, the Vespers came out in 1610. Like, he didn't even try didn't to wait that mask long in the fact that he had written basically exactly the same thing. Dude, what a genius. it is the same tune. It's like... Like, you're going to hear it in a second. Let's listen, Let's just smash it. But I promise you, it's basically like hearing the bit from L'Orfeo. You're going to love it. Here we go. Thank you. 
Jesus. Like, I've just played Chris, both of them. I've actually, do you know what, listeners, I'm going to play. So that was the Vespers, okay? Yeah. That was the first piece of Vespers. Here is the Toccata from Orfeo. It's the same thing. It's not the same. Okay. I mean, you know what? Is it plagiarism if you rip yourself off? I would argue <laughs> yes, not. Yes, I would is. argue that he's just being economical he with resources. Like, well, that was a great idea that I had. So I'm just going to do it again. Like, no one will notice that. Do you? Like, everyone knows. Like, you've changed key, like, minorly. He's you know like, I mean? Claudio, you genius. Claudio. <laughs> <laughs> you ledge. Anyway, look, the point is, I can't really blame him. It is a great little uh, little kind of figure there that he does. For sure, for sure. And it's another example of chacon. You know, it's like yeah. that, that like repetitive, really simple, really quick kind of baseline going over yeah. and over, yeah. uh, which he clearly, clearly mastered. Couldn't get enough of. Uh, but there you go. So that is my introduction to Monteverdi. The Full Monty. Uh, if you want to listen to other things... Ooh, do tell me. Uh, you should check out... Do you know what? Just check out his madrigals. You can find lovely mm. collections of his madrigals all over Spotify. Lovely. And, sort of and as we know, else. he wrote a lot of madrigals. He wrote a ton of madrigals. Um, check out his Vespers. There's also this lovely album that I found called The Other Vespers, which is kind of taken from his later kind of sacred works. Mm. Um, and there's a lovely Ave Verum corpus in that. Cool. Uh, to go along with our Ave Verum corpus theme and yeah you know what he is just his vibe in the, the the kind as the crossover between renaissance and baroque like you won't i think it's difficult to find a composer that is so accessible as mm. he is back then like with sure. his like lovely floating kind of emotional melodies and stuff yeah. like that a lot of the other dudes back then and indeed ladies they weren't quite as imaginative i yeah. like to think yeah. um so monteverdi really if you if you're interested in that kind of time Definitely start with Monteverdi. Amazing. And one thing that I actually think really speaks to Monteverdi mm. is that he sort of straddles the barrier between Renaissance, <laughs> right. for want of a better phrase, yeah. between Renaissance and Baroque. Right. And lots of the most interesting composers actually do that. They're the ones they're who move. They're stragglers. They're stragglers. <laughs> they move music on into a new period. So, for example, like yeah. Beethoven was the tail end of the classical period, the beginning of the romantic period. Right. So, yeah, actually some of the most interesting composers, the ones who exist sort of in between what For we sure. commonly describe as the they're, normal eras of music. They're the so, trailblazers, yeah. really, exactly. aren't they? So check them out. And that was our episode on Claudio Monteverdi and William Bird. Mm -hmm. We hope you enjoyed it. Yes. We had a lot of fun. Before we go, we just want to say thank you again to the uh, British Podcast Awards for <laughs> nominating us. Thank you very much. And thank you most of all to you guys, the listeners, uh, for supporting us over the last couple of years. We uh, absolutely could not have done it without yeah, you guys. We're really excited and to we be nominated. Every single thing that we hear from you and all of your support, it's amazing. If you want to get in touch with us, be part of that crowd. Hell yeah. Um, you can find us at our website, www.thatclassicalpodcast.com. Uh, we're on Spotify if you want ah. to listen to us on there. We've also got a playlist on Spotify, which will be putting all of the pieces that we talked about today on there. And also the pieces that we've suggested you go and listen to and Magical. some other stuff as well. And more importantly than that, if you've enjoyed the show today, please head over to iTunes and give us a little five star review on there. We'd really it helps us out a lot. Appreciate it. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.